Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi. And welcome. This is Visual Workplace Radio, and my name is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I am your host on our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. And I am thrilled to talk to you today because, you know, in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices, visual mini systems. How do we install the language of our current level of operational excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be? How do we do that? Because when we make that level, those details, concrete and specific, when we embed them, we design in the performance. We design in how Our thinking that is the performance will function. We've captured it. Visuality is about information, but more than that, it is a language. It is an embedded language. Therefore, it is about performance and it is about meaning. Visuality literally demonstrates, shows us the way we make work function. And it makes work functional. Okay, and meaningful. We make the connection between intent, design, and performance. So that's what we do on Letting the Workplace Speak on Visual Workplace Radio. As you know, currently, I am marching through my book, Work That Makes Sense. Yellow cover has a a nautilus on the cover and then some heads in the curl of the nautilus, nicely designed by a gentleman named Bill Stanton. That book came out in 2011. A couple of shows back, I said it came out in 2015. Nope, a couple of other books came out, but not that one. And it is going through a slight overhaul, uh, and that should be out sometime this summer. We've been delayed because the world has been delayed, as you know. Things have kind of, our schedules in general of our lives and our work has been have been slightly impacted <laughs> by bigger issues. So let me announce that uh, you can find us at Visual Workplace Radio. I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, at visualworkplace.com. That's our website. Lots of free articles there, podcasts of all of my shows that you can download directly from our site, and also a good presentation of our products and our services, what we can do for you on-site when on-site becomes a part of our world again when we begin to travel And I want to announce, as I have been, that we're getting very close, probably, yes, currently, our online training system, Work That Makes Sense, is available through the Shingo Institute website. We are very honored that the Shingo Institute likes my work so well. And this is a really good online training system for operators. It is the book that we're walking through on its feet, implementable, action-oriented, across 12 marvelous modules plus three for management. It's narrated, it's animated. I think it's really good work, really good work. Oh, something over a thousand photographs and, I'm sorry, I should say it this way, something over a thousand visual examples. And it's focused on the operator. So we were walking through that book. We got through Chapter 3, which is your implementation toolbox. And then if you remember, I said, you know, with the, which is also Module 3, with Module 3, the methodology begins. We did the setup in Module 1, introduced people to visuality. In Module 2, which is about the eight building blocks, we gave them the elements, the components, the building blocks of thinking, the kind of thinking we called visual thinking. With Chapter 3, we gave implementation tools, ways to anchor ideas, 
ways to track ideas and other tools, some of the management tools that operators should know about that will make the conversion much more substantial and more sustainable. So that was chapter one, two, and three. In chapter four, we begin the methodology. It's really a sub-methodology. It's very tightly uh, tacked. It's called smart placement. And I thought I'd better say something about how the trainers train visuality and how they train work that makes sense so that you understand that the work that is being done from here on out, from Module 4, Chapter 4, right through the whole cycle, is very hands-on and has a particular bend to it. It depends greatly on a skilled trainer, or I would say it this way, a trainer who becomes increasingly skilled by following the elements of being a great or good or brilliant visual workplace trainer. So I walked through some of the fundamental factors in the two previous shows that had to do with an orientation of the visual workplace trainer really, really liking visuality for themselves and curious about it and on their own journey of discovery. I talked about the importance of homework, that the trainer really needs to find the change he or she is going to teach in the next session before that session, to find the change so that you know that that change is not only possible, but you know what it looks like and what it will perform like as a minimum basis. When you do a good job teaching, your operators, your value-add associates will achieve that level themselves. But if they get stuck, you're there to coach and direct them to get them over the tricky bits so that they can then follow the flow of the thinking on their own. But at least you have, and we mean this really as a minimus, at least you have a foundation of knowing what is possible because you've discovered it for yourself, and that's part of your job as a trainer. We have a hard and fast rule when we are working on site and we're training trainers or if we're following them along uh, in, in our long-distance session, don't train it if you don't if you can't do it. Don't ask your collaborators, your operators, your value-add associates to create a change that you are not acquainted with yet. It's a change that is actual in the locale, in the company, in the areas where these value-add associates are working. So it's very real. And it's just such a collaborative model and a respectful one. You demonstrate respect for your operators by doing your own homework. So we talked about that. We, we, were, we are going to hit it more when we enter into the methodology. I'll be able to bring forward much of the discussion we're having here in a rather condensed way about training and about what happens in the classroom when we move through the methodology itself to, to give you more of that, more of that flavor. So becoming a brilliant visual workplace trainer has several aspects of it, several very concrete aspects. Today, we're going to focus on the role of the supervisor in your visual workplace, your work that makes sense, training and implementation success. What is that role? And why do I call it crucial? Because... The role I'm about to describe is probably not what you think, nor is it what they think. Everybody knows that it is vital for supervisors and managers to get on board and stay on board. But what if they unknowingly spoil the process because they don't understand the nature of the change that visuality represents for their direct reports? Even natural-born, highly effective supervisors may need to rethink their approach. And that's the purpose of this session we're having today, this episode. Okay? 
I will be incorporating the remaining principles of effective visual workplace training. If you remember, I walked through those nine. So just to use that as a kind of segue, I'm just going to walk through the principles until we get to uh, principle five, five, six, which is where we left off in the last show. So the nine principles. Principle one, inspire first, then inform. Principle two, start small. Don't try to do a big training because you'll get into trouble. That first cycle of training is for you to learn how to train the stuff. So lower your expectations and also lower the quantity of people you're training so you can really get into the impact, financial, and also the cultural change and the cultural change in you. Principle three, everybody gets trained no representative training, please. No representative training, meaning no selective training. Oh, let's train these four people out of these 17, and they'll be able to accompany us on our Kaizen blitzes and be useful. No, no, no. We train everybody across all shifts. Everyone. Everyone gets trained. Principle four, make the training room safe. And if you remember, I said, yes, of course, it has to be physically safe, but it also has to be psychologically safe. And there were two main mechanisms for that that we spent quite a bit time, quite a bit of time on in the last show. Normalize the room. That doesn't mean just warm things up. It means create flow. And that flow first happens between one individual, one value add associate and another through the second tool which is called talk amongst yourselves. So those two tools are very important. We never train without it. We normalize the room, and part of that will be setting up a situation, a scenario, where everyone can succeed. Nobody is wrong, so nobody is shy to speak, except they are. And so then the second mechanism or sub-tool comes in, talk amongst yourselves. When I train, I never ask anyone to speak at the beginning of a session until they've tried out their voice and their thinking on someone else, someone sitting next to them, someone safe, somebody they know, somebody who will just hear them speak quietly, laterally, each person talking to the other person quietly, organizing their thoughts, lubricating their brain and their vocal cords, having that initial opportunity talking back and forth to a neighbor. And then after three or four minutes, saying to folks, okay, what have you got? Share with me. Let's talk about what you were talking about. And even then, even when you meet with these groups, And typically the pace is once a week. Sometimes it's every two weeks. There's certain action assignments to happen between each session. So you get that assignment done and then you come for the next learning block. Even then, when people have seen you do this two or three times, they're going to hesitate. And there'll be this long silence and you hold fast. It'll test your mettle at school with a double T, it'll test what you're made of to just hold the space and say, it's okay, take your time. And then people begin to speak and they see that it is safe, that it is psychologically safe, even emotionally safe for them to come out, to come out and to feel the approbation, to feel the support to feel even the congratulations. We don't do a lot of clapping. We just say things like, oh, that's a really cool point. Or even stronger, I think that's a really interesting point. Who's got something to build on that? Can you make a connection off of what George just said? Take a moment. There's a connection there. And I saw you talk about this last week. Or I walked around in your area this morning, especially Motorman. Hmm? What happened there? What can we build on what George just said? My goodness, what a a shot of confidence that is. 
to feel your thought being used as the next learning point. It's a mighty outcome, and you work for that. I want to say before, while we're in the topic of talk amongst yourselves and inside the classroom coaching and normalizing the room, making, really creating flow, creating flow as the first requirement of starting to train, that when you do that and that becomes a part of the way you structure in the opening part of your sessions, you can easily parlay that into something that I want to mention now because it'll come up in a few, you know, in a few weeks. And that is you will be aligned with what I call discovery learning, discovery teaching, which is you as the instructor will be listening to your operators to learn from them. You want there to be a sense of discovery, which is built on curiosity, in the training as one of its components, as one of its conditions, discovery teaching. But this time we're talking about discovery learning for you. This is one of the ways, I am taking a tangent now, but this has come up so many times in the last year with a particular group that I've been working with, that when they stop and really listen to what the associates in the room are saying, they begin to listen what's underneath it. And they learn. And they say things like, hey, wait a minute, Jose Luis, what you're saying is da-da-da-da. Please tell me more about that. And everyone, would you just hang out with me a little bit? Because for me, this is just so interesting. And I have to say, I've never thought of it before. And that is true. If you listen carefully, I rarely, in fact, I will say I never, in the training that I do or the training of trainers that I teach, we never get into a situation where people are parroting, like a parrot just repeating back. Because this is about visual thinking. And so we're very interested in the thinking mechanism and strengthening that, finding that muscle and then beginning to use it. This is the way to demonstrate respect. Respect for humanity. Respect for the person. Respect for yourself. Respect for the company. Hey, you just said something I just never even thought of before. I need you to say it again. Could you use other words? Now, I know that may sound like I'm being crafty, but I'm not. I sincerely want to know. I particularly want to know because for every company I've ever worked at, I'm a stranger. I don't work there. I don't know the nuances. I don't know what things mean. So I'm sincere when I say, tell me more. But that's not hard for any trainer to do, even an in-house trainer, if you're listening. It's something that we teach to trainers. It's called receiving. It's so important. But this is another aspect of discovery learning, my learning, because the person in the classroom with me is teaching me. And that other thing is called receiving. And this is a gap. I didn't mean to go on this tangent today, but it's so congruent with this idea of psychological safety in the room that once that's in place, you can begin to take it other places. So when a young trainer learns how to do that, normalize the room and we give the we give a normalizing exercise for the beginning of every single module including the ones that we've gone over so as the young trainer learns to do that and sees the difference between a cold room that doesn't recognize you or themselves and a warm room where flow is present And they begin to understand, I can't train until there's flow. I better do it. Ah, follow this formula. Okay. We can point out to them 
the same mini event that happens, the micro event, when someone says something during the course of the training session, answers a question, and it's not received. You ask a question as a new young trainer, you say, all right, I want to check for understanding. Can you give me an example of what we just discussed, that particular concept? Would you talk amongst yourselves for a moment? This is all designed. This is all what the trainers and trainers in training learn. Take a moment, check for understanding. It's part of the arc. And listen. They may listen to the answer, but they have to take another step and they have to receive it. They have to acknowledge that they listened and they heard. This receiving part is an indispensable extension of normalizing the room, of acknowledging the flow. If you want to call it of catching the ball, it's kind of a catch ball thing, which is very popular for if you're if you've done a lot of Japanese-based um, methodologies, catch ball. But in this case, we mean catch it immediately. A ball's been thrown at you. Don't move on to the next person because you got one answer. Move on to a second until you've ca- caught the ball, received the ball, and say, ah, okay, I got you. And there you can stop and you can receive some more, especially if you're trying to strengthen that person or strengthen the flow of the room. Tell me more about that, Marianne. I understand this is what you mean, but I think you mean something more than that. Do you get where I'm going? Ah, of course you do. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, thank you. Received. You receive it. And then you move on to the next person. You don't have to do this laboriously, but you do acutely need to receive every comment. Unless you're doing some kind of rapid round robin where you're just firing cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha, you receive. That strengthens the person. This is part of your sustainability. Okay, so (laughs) that was darn it. It took me a while. And I always apologize for my long-windedness. I think of Joe who, after my first my absolute first show ever in 2011 on Voice America Radio. Joe wrote me, said, I love what you're saying. Can you get to the point a little faster? <laughs> it was like trying to turn me into a leper when I was a zebra, a zebra, a leopard when I was a zebra, or a giraffe when I was a zebra. It was like, no, you know, I can't. So that was principle four, make the room safe, make the training room safe. Okay, let's go on to principle five, which I touched upon last week. And that uh, last show, sorry, not last week, last show, Well, that would be last week. Okay, I'm right. Principle five. Get and keep your supervisors on board. Let me just go over this, and then I want to really develop it along with principle six, which is supervisors keep a low profile. So you want to get your supervisors on board. They are indispensable, as I said at the top of the show, to the success of the conversion, the implementation. Okay? You are going to have to train your supervisors on how to be coaches, but not right now. If they already know, great, you've got that. But it's going to be critical in your organization if you're making the transition from traditional command and control management approach to a more aligned, empowered, more balanced approach, you're going to have to work with your supervisors. This is not necessarily time-consuming, but it does take time. And one of the points that I made last time was supervisors from the areas that are targeted for this training, which, as you may remember, were identified on the laminated map that management created. Where do we begin? 
which areas will be in this training cycle, what are the success factors, blah, 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 blah. Supervisors attend all the training sessions. We want every manager and every supervisor to watch all the modules and work make, that makes sense. We like to see them watch before the launch so they have a basic, detailed, fairly detailed understanding of where this training is going, what the outcomes are, and then they sit in when the module is trained by your in-house trainer or by us if we're around, and they see how their teams, these areas, respond. So that's the first part. Now, principle six, supervisors keep a low profile. During the actual work that makes sense training sessions, the supervisors support eye-driven thinking, support the approach that is so fundamental to the success of work that makes sense, why it was conceived of, to develop confidence, the confidence of operators, the skill, the engagement level, the spirited contribution of associates on the value-add level. And that means specifically that any supervisor or manager in the room does not supervise during the training session, does not supervise. The job of the teaching is the trainers, okay? They're in charge of the room, and so supervisors are asked not to do anything but listen, to suspend their role as supervisors during the training sessions. Not to urge, persuade, exhort, demand, request, influence, require, motivate, expect, anything. They simply attend and observe. They are not asked to make it happen, nor are they asked, and specifically asked not to, worry about it if any of their so-called direct reports, their operators, misbehave in a way that they feel compromised about. Say the wrong thing or don't say anything at all. Fold up their arms, hold on to their bodies and not play. It's fine. It's fine. We say to the supervisor, it's okay. And we do this before every session. We meet with them a couple of hours before we launch the training and we tell them what's coming. There's something called the pre-launch checklist, which we'll go through sometime as we go through the work that makes sense sequence. Because you see supervisors who are by nature action-driven and results-oriented Supervisors who are paid to supervise are going to get in the way. They're going to get in the way by becoming one of the authority figures in a session and in a process where we want the authority to be absorbed by your operators, your value-add associates. That's what we call eye-driven. doesn't mean... Mayhem results. It doesn't mean anarchy. It means that where there is an opportunity, and there are many, for operators to be powerful, to have an opinion, to formulate, to find an opinion, we support that. We support that. And I will tell you, many supervisors don't like it. They don't like to be invisible because they feel ineffective. But we assure them at every opportunity that they're doing the right thing because even the trainer needs to become invisible. We need to let the methodology teach. In not engaging their supervisory or management skills, we've often had the GM in the room, In not engaging their so-called positional authority, these staff members, these, these management, executives, supervisors, allow associates to discover new strengths in themselves, new ideas in themselves, 
new skills, and with those, new confidence and a new willingness to participate and then to contribute. This doesn't happen overnight, although it can and has often happened quickly if those qualities are already highly developed in supervisors and maybe even in your value-add associates. But if not, we ask supervisors and managers to take a passive role during the training and during all the hands-on exercises, they keep a low profile. Let me give give you some detail on that. So I've already said supervisors are asked not to manage the training process in the session room and not to manage people in the usual, usual sense of the term. And I've often said the most helpful thing you can do right now to support the rollout here in this room is to do nothing. Don't suggest, don't ask, don't answer, don't worry. The worry is mine, not yours. And we explain to supervisors what happens in the classroom is... Indeed, not just an experiment, but a diagnosis. I want, I'm talking as a, as a trainer, as though it were my session, my sequence, and I would say, I want to know who's in the room. I'm happy to get to know you, but not in this room. Not during this time. Let's meet afterwards as much as you want. I want to get to know your value-add associates, and I can only get to know them if they can be themselves, truly themselves, whoever the heck they are today, today. Maybe they had a terrible night. The baby was crying. They had a fight with the spouse. or They got upset about something. Let them bring that into the room. I want to be able to see the dynamics of people as they are as individuals and also as part of this group. So, you know, during the session, supervisors, and this often happens, I'm going to ask you to sit somewhere else, if you don't mind. Don't sit at the table. Later on, as the room gets warmed up and people become engaged in the content, I will say to you and the, the people who, who are here learning to be trainers of work that makes sense, I will say to you, please, you can go around now and you can listen in, eavesdrop, on what's happening at the table. And let me give you a few pointers of, about how to do that. I don't want to sound like a Nazi when I say this to you, but I'm going to ask you as much as possible not to make eye contact. I'm going to ask you when you approach a table to not stand over it. I'm going to ask you not to bring your coffee cup or whatever the heck you're drinking, your Pepsi, with you. But when you come to a table to, if it's comfortable for you, get down, bend, bend, so your knees are bent, Just put your elbow on the table and stare at the floor and listen. It's a privileged position. Just listen. Hear what's going on. Do not interact. Do not interact. If your knees feel a little bit shaky or it's just hard like it is for me sometimes, grab a chair and put it on the outside. If people try to make room for you at the table, just, you know how to say it with your hands. No, it's okay. I'm okay. And then take that chair with you to the next table and just listen. That's your your privilege is to listen in and move from table to table. Now, later on, especially when we get to Smart Placement uh, Modules 6 and 7, Chapters 6 and 7, where people are really applying Smart Placement Principles, and it gets so interesting, there will be a coach if there's enough overage in the number of trainers and training in the room, you'll put one of the trainers as a coach at every table with every team. And that person's job in that capacity is to be the scribe 
but not be the supervisor. The trainers are listening, and they follow the same rule that I'm about to give you, supervisors, if you're asked a question. If you're asked a question, answer it with a question. And the question is usually, well, what do you think? Or how would you do it? Because, in fact, that's where the richness lies, and that's where the answers lie. You know, I'm much more interested to hear what you think, is another way of saying it. But what do you think is fine? You answer a question with a question. It actually is called Teaching Without Answers. And its purpose is to build strength that it has not perhaps been used that often or called forth that often. Talk amongst yourselves. That's what I say at the top of the room. And people will turn to you, if, especially if you're in a position of authority, if you're the GM, if you're the head engineer. I'm not saying to be rude, and I'm not saying to ignore all technical questions. You'll know when you actually have a right and a, and a, and a moment to respond with facts, but it is not for three-quarters of the session that you're sitting in. When we get to technical issues such as smart placement, we're talking about the range of function for a crane or we're talking about weight or we're talking about fixtures or whatever, then there might be one or two technical tidbits facts you can share, but what we want you to do instead, as much as possible, is what do you think, or, you know, don't you think that's something that, that would be really good to investigate? You, I can, I can, I can see if, if um, Jorge is available to meet with you, put it on your action hit list and um, let's see if we can arrange a good time for you to actually meet and get those answers. Okay, so you keep pushing it back. You ask the operators to be the executives. You ask the operators to be the administrators. You ask the operators to keep their own schedule and keep track of the gaps in their understanding. You ask your operators to build a bridge with staff and to use their legitimate questions as a way to build those relationships. You're creating an alignment by utilizing the actual stuff and substance that is going on in the legitimate pursuit of the methodology, work that makes sense, the sub-methodology called smart placement. Okay, and people come up. People come up. Don't be offended. This low-profile principle for supervisors and managers, where you're going to have, I know you're going to need a few reminders before and during and after the session. How did that go? (laughs) How did you feel about that? It creates an open forum. It creates an open forum between you as the trainer and those supervisors saying, you know, I'm not really that comfortable with not telling my people what to do. Tell me more is what the trainer says. Tell me more. What's that like? Well, you know, I, I, I'm kind of giving over all my authority. Hmm? Are you? Let's talk about it, blah, blah, blah. And you work that through. There is a second reason for this approach. It isn't just to build a muscle that most operators haven't had a chance to recognize, let alone exercise. But it is also a second good reason is to switch off the so-called police facet of the daily work of a lot of supervisors. They have the opportunity 
to learn a valuable skill or maybe even new skill, and that is how to become coaches of continuous improvement. The difference between teaching and coaching is teaching is imparting new knowledge. Coaching is applying it. Most supervisors interested in learning how to be effective coaches usually have to make some change in their own personal or professional approach because the supervisory approach, which seems to work well in work content, work performance, work outputs, doesn't work that well in coaching. You don't give up your role as supervisor responsible for outcomes working through others. But coaching is a different aspect of the new role for supervisors. And if you remember, a number of months ago, I spent, I think, 13 sessions on the new leadership, visual leadership, and I identified seven qualities or elements for supervisors. Remember, they were set in a, uh, sorry, what's it called? A sexagon, a sexagon, six-sided figure in the center was the seventh, they were like a, a, a daisy, and one of your characteristics, elements of being a supervisor was to coach, but there were others, which was to stabilize, to measure, to target, to improve. Hmm? I have to pull that out. I will for the next time. I'll remind you of those seven elements, but at the seven o'clock, at the the eight o'clock mark was coach. Okay, so that that creates a fullness, a more completeness of your role as a supervisor, so you get a chance to practice it. It's really, really important. When you when a company implements workplace visuality, especially the methodologies that I have created and that I teach, the one such methodology is work that makes sense. This can be a groundbreaking myth-breaking opportunity. Supervisors deserve our thanks and our support and our endorsement for their efforts. But for work that makes sense, they need to step aside temporarily to allow the conversion that they've been seeking to take place, the conversion to a spirited, engaged, and empowered workforce. This is an important way I would say an indispensable way for embedding I-driven, the I-driven that we spoke about at the beginning of Chapter 2 when we were doing the building blocks. The first building block is I-driven. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? How do you convert an operator, a welder, an assembler, a clerk, a material handler, into a scientist of motion? How do you create an eye-driven culture, the social fabric of a company that is in balance? The level has to begin at the level of the employee's sense of self and his or her perceived place within the enterprise. Is it really my hands, my legs, my heart, and my mind? Will I really become, at work, the hero of my own life? Remember our conversation about that? David Copperfield, in the quiet of his heart, there is David pondering his young life, and he asks, will I be the hero of my own life? Charles Dickens' classic novel, David Copperfield, and over the next 400 pages, David Copperfield proceeds to discover the answer to that question. In the trials and adventures of becoming a man in 19th century England, 
what about that question in the trials and adventures of becoming a contributor in your company? David's question is our question, though quietly forgotten as we grow older. When each of us was young, this was the question in our young heart. Will I be the hero of my own life? It may have been worded differently. Maybe it sounded like, what will I be when I grow up? What will I be? There, deep in the mystery of childhood, and then in the adolescent heart, was and is a profound belief that whatever it turned out to be, I'm going to be excellent at it. I'm going to excel. I'm going to make something of my life. I'm going to be its hero. Remember we spoke about this. I want to take this principle of the supervisors stepping aside for the moment further. I want to talk to you before I get to principle, which one am I on? Principle seven. I want to talk to you about the power inversion, and I'll do this in our next show. And I will um, draw your attention to the book that looks at holistically visual workplace, visual thinking. That's the name of the book, Visual Workplace, Visual Thinking. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on our website. And it talks about the eye-driven culture, but also the power inversion, leadership and the power inversion. And that is exactly what we're doing with this principle of saying supervisors find and keep a low profile. Let the eye come forward. Let the power that is within the individual whom you call a value-add associate begin to tremble and grow, begin to shudder and increase. Let's invert the power structure. I'll walk you through that next week. It's so important. And one of the, the, the great, um, I don't want to say pleasure, but that's the word that's in my, in my mind. In fact, it's what I feel. Uh, because if I don't use that word, I'm going to say one of the great glories. And then you really think that I'm self-important, <laughs> that I have these delusions of grandeur. But I've seen what these the, this methodology does. One of the components of the success of work that makes sense and of this journey of the I that the operator takes, and I hasten, I hasten to add a similar journey through other visual methods of the supervisor, a similar journey through other visual methods of the GM and the executive, a similar journey for the maintenance staff and for the quality staff. All of, all of these are eye-driven. But that's one of the designed outputs. It is an output eye-driven that we look for every opportunity to identify and promote. And the trainer is the front line on that. The trainer is the first responder. The trainer isn't just parroting content and asking yes or no questions and then moving on rapidly through module after module. The trainer, the brilliant visual workplace trainer, is developing meaning and alignment, contribution, reality, the reality of being through the methodology of work that makes sense. And it makes every part of the organization shudder in happy response. We are, by interfacing with our operators in a full and fulsome manner, we are causing a seismic cultural shift, a transformation in our, in our workplace. There are ways to do this, but for me, work that makes sense, I've never found a better way. I've never encountered anything that's 
as comprehensive in its impact and as complete in both its challenge and in the delivery of, of its promise. Transformative. Transformative. Where I come to work and I become the hero of my own life at work. Where I spend so much time. And where I am invisible even to myself. Oh, what a glory. If you remember, I think I have time to read it. Remember the poem that I opened this book with. Let's see if it's... Ah, yes, it is. This is the, this is the visual thinking book. Kingfishers Catch Fire. As Kingfishers, this is Gerard Manley Hopkins. I've read this to you before. <laughs> Don't throw anything at me. As Kingfishers, these marvelous birds, look them up on Google. As Kingfishers Catch Fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells, crying what I do is me, for that I came. Crying, what I do is me, for that I came. Hopkins is saying, I am now summing the entire of, of everyone's life. My life, your life, their life, everyone's life is about this. Deals out that being, indoors each one dwells, selves goes itself. Myself it speaks in spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. Honestly... This is work that makes sense. This is also visual leadership. It's visual machine. It's pokeo quality. It's visual thinking. It's visual scheduling and visual display boards. It's a pleasure to share my work with you. It's a pleasure to hear your listening and to know that we are together. I forget the rest. Thank you very much. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. This is Visual Workplace Radio. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.